in the book of Nehemiah. And so I invite you uh, now and direct your attention to chapter 6 of this Old Testament book of Nehemiah. So you're welcome to turn there if you have a hard copy or a uh, device in front of you. I'll be reading verses uh, 1 through 16 of this chapter in order for us to understand something of the context. And, uh, and then we will look at this in particular and see what uh, God has for us today. Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. When Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and no gap was left in it, though at that time I had not installed the doors of the city gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ano Valley. They were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing an important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. Sanballat sent me the same message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nation, and Geshem agrees, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you are building the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king and have even set up prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf there is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king, so come, let's confer together. Then I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. But now my God strengthened my hands. I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, the son of Hedabel, who was restricted to his house, he said, let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? How can someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired so that I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin, and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they have done, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. The wall was completed in 52 days on the 25th day of the month of Elul. When all our enemies heard this and all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. We'll stop at that point. 
Of all the uh, towering figures that we find in the Old Testament, certainly Nehemiah has a place in the Hall of Fame. The walls of Jerusalem had remained demolished for several generations, even though the Jews had lived in, back in their homeland for quite a long time. In fact, it's even suspected that when the temple was built, maybe Nehemiah hadn't even been born at that time. And that was maybe several, several decades before this that the temple had been rebuilt. But the walls had laid demolished and the city was exposed, it was vulnerable. And in order to rebuild it, it would require a very special man with specialized gifts. And Nehemiah was God's man for this need and for this hour. So that when he arrived and he set forth the vision that God had given to him to rebuild the walls and the people could see his optimism and his vision and that he had been called by God it changed their minds from we can't do this to we must do this. Let us rebuild, everyone said in unison. And their, their hands were strengthened for the work at hand. Now, Nehemiah's call at this critical hour reminds me of a, a little bit of Winston Churchill when he was called up for service to the British people, the British people and parliament and the king asked him to lead their nation at a critical hour when it seemed as though the Nazi army was going to defeat this island nation and the Nazi flag would fly over parliament. And on that first evening of his call up to service as the prime minister of Britain, Winston Churchill recorded in his diary, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been in preparation for this hour and this trial. It, when I read that, it kind of sends chills over me because this is, these are words that would describe Nehemiah. It would describe Moses and Joshua and others. And I wonder if Nehemiah could write something in his diary, something of this effect that I felt as if I was walking with God's destiny for me. And all of my past life had been in preparation for this hour and this trial because the lessons that he had learned in the past served him well now. Lessons about relying in prayer upon God and also facing danger with faith and not giving up. And that all comes together right here in this critical time of chapter six. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshev the Arab had conspired together to set some traps in order to stop the rebuilding of the temple because it was on the very brink of, of completion. And so these men, it was as though they went into a full court press. 
you know, they, they, they felt as though they were just about ready to lose the championship game. And they, so they pulled out of their playbook every dirty trick that there was. And they set about to make sure that this, these walls would not be finished. And we see something of what they were thinking in verse nine. Nehemiah records, for they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be completed. It will never be finished. That was the whole aim of this, that it would not be completed because if the gates weren't installed, then the city was just as vulnerable as when the, the walls were demolished. Now, failure to finish well, failure to finish well is a temptation that faces every Christian believer. And it faces us in some of the most important areas of our lives. They come at a critical point when we are tempted to walk away from being faithful to our marriage vows. Comes at a critical hour when we are faced with the temptation of walking away from being a godly dad or mom in our home. Or when the danger comes of the allures of the treasures of this world over against the treasures of God. We're forced to make a choice. Or the discouragements that come and they slam into us at unexpected times and we feel as though we want to quit because we have lost heart. The temptation of not finishing well arrives when we're faced with the unrelenting temptations of the flesh and they wear us down. I'm talking about the danger of walking away from the promises that you made to God, of walking away from your assignment or your calling or your integrity or walking away from what is most important because we've all made progress on the walls, but the doors have yet to be installed and we are on the cusp of finishing. But then we, we face the schemes and the voices and the frightening trials and the disappointments and we face the enemy of our souls that tries to intimidate us and he wrings his hands with a sinister sneer, and he says, they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. Is that going on in your life? Do you know what that feels like? Let me ask you some probing questions. Are you at a place where you're thinking of walking away or pulling back or resigning or giving in to your sinful flesh? Are you close to finishing? And what you do in the next few days or the next few weeks is going to determine whether you win or whether you lose it all. What has the enemy of your soul been whispering to you? And who are those people? Who are those people that he has subtly and 
and hidden in your path in order to intimidate you? And has he set these people in your path to draw you away because they are advertising something and they're saying, this will make you happy, but it's all a lie. Are you facing that? A successful finish is within the reach of everybody here. But in order to complete the course that God has for us, I want to suggest that we apply three ingredients that we find embedded within this chapter. Three ingredients that will enable us to finish well. Do you know there are so many that this eludes them? It's it's just outside of their reach. They have have a, a stellar, a sterling record of a life but they don't finish well. What happened? Well, what are those ingredients that are required? Let me suggest the first. The first ingredient in order to finish well is watchfulness, the art of discernment. Nehemiah smelled that odious, unpleasant odor of treachery when he received this invitation from Sanballat and Geshem in verse two. And there were a couple of reasons why this stunk. And the first of the authors of this invitation, that sent red flags in his mind. You know, these two guys never had a noble thought in their mind. When did they ever want to do a favor for Nehemiah? Consider the source. But the second reason why this smelled bad because of the place that they wanted to meet. In the, in the villages of the Anna Valley, it was, it was bordering an area that the Jews just never went to. And, and so Nehemiah replied and he said, I'm doing an important work here. This is a huge work and I cannot come. Why should the work cease and I leave it to meet up with you guys? Of course, their aim was that the work does cease permanently. Four times Nehemiah received the same invitation. Four times. Now, you can feel the desperation with Sanballat and Geshem. And finally, they sent an open letter, which was a ploy in order to put pressure on Nehemiah because the open letter meant that Everybody was going to read the letter. All of the citizens. And if the enemies could enlist the citizens to put pressure on Nehemiah to meet up with them, then maybe maybe they could succeed in their sinister ploys. But this last letter claimed to have rumors. And their rumors that, that, that they suggested was that that he wanted to make himself king. And, and, and so Nehemiah's response was short and it cut off Sam Ballad at his knees. He said, there is nothing to these rumors that you're spreading. You're inventing them in your own mind. See, watchfulness alerted Nehemiah to this dirty trick. 
that this was an enemy that set a trap for him. And you and I, you and I must cultivate this discipline of discernment and being watchful in order to be able to see past what is being advertised, past the words, to see what's really going on here. What's the motive behind all of this? What do they really want from me? Watchfulness is, is like a sentry of the soul that guards us from danger. So the question is, how can you and I cultivate watchfulness? Well, I would suggest that what we need to do is to have a frequent filling, a, a healthful filling of God's word. Because it's God's word that alerts us to the lies. You know, Satan's only weapon in his arsenal his only weapon are his lies. It started in the Garden of Eden where he cast doubt upon God's word by saying, did God really say? And then he followed it with a bold-faced lie. No, you shall not die. And he's been telling lies ever since because that's the only thing he's got. And he comes in, in the form of an angel of light, something that looks inviting and harmless and good for us. He's the father of lies. Deception is the stuff that he works with. And it's the word of God that alerts us. It may be a chapter that you had read the day before. And so, you know, when he comes as an angel of light, he is so cunning and so slick that there is nobody in this room that can discern what's really going on when he shows up apart from the word of God and the Holy Spirit alerting us to that. And that's why we need to have a frequent filling of God's word, a healthful intake all the time. I read it every day. And, and then I take a multiple vitamin of one chapter out of the book of Proverbs. And I keep feeding my mind in order to be able to exercise watchfulness. Because when we do that, the Holy Spirit brings that to our memory. That, that portion that we read the day before or maybe that morning. And he says, watch out. This is a dirty trick. Danger ahead. So that's the first thing that we can do to cultivate watchfulness. The second thing that we can do is that we sharpen our watchfulness when we gather together with other Christian believers to explore and to, and to enjoy our shared love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that on a regular basis when we gather together and we bring our Bibles and we, we enjoy perhaps a, um, a worship song or a hymn together. And then we together begin to eat upon God's word according to Colossians 3.16. And, and it develops in, in us watchfulness. 
How watchful have you been over the past year? Have you stopped something that could have eroded your marriage vows? And you said, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not listening to that. I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to click that. I'm not going there. Have you felt God's correcting hand as he arrested a dangerous thought in your mind or emotions? Have you guarded, have you guarded your public and your private integrity? Did you see a trap that was laid in your path over the past year? Like Nehemiah, we need to be watchful, especially when there is that voice inside of our head that says, well, you deserve to be happy. I mean, it can't be wrong if it feels right. Stay alert because there is an adversary, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone that he can devour. Now, there is a second ingredient here that is important for us if we are going to finish well. Not only watchfulness, but secondly, single-minded determination. Single-minded determination. There was this self-appointed prophet that tried to frighten Nehemiah with this prophetic oracle that he, he gave. And Nehemiah refused to listen. His name was Shemaiah. He's found in verse 10 here. And Shemaiah was one that lived within Nehemiah's own neighborhood. And he had been enlisted by Sanballat to do his dirty work. And Shemaiah pretended to be Nehemiah's friend. Like, I'm doing you a favor here. I'm on your side. Now, that was a bunch of baloney. He wasn't at all. Asking Nehemiah to come to his home, Shemaiah warns him of danger. And he frames it as though it was an oracle or a prophetic revelation because he wanted to have it an air of believability because he said to himself, well, if I can make it sound authentic, then maybe Nehemiah will fall for it. So this is how it went. Let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But Nehemiah wasn't fooled by this false friend, this, this angel of light, and he knew, he knew that God had not given him permission to cross the threshold of the temple and to go inside. That was not for him. That was for appointed priests. It was off limits. There was no trespassing. And so verse 13 unmasks Shemaiah when it says he was hired so that I would be intimidated to do as he suggested, sin and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. And Nehemiah wasn't about to swerve into that lane. He showed single-minded determination to do the right thing. Verse 11, should a man like me run away? How can someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. Single-mindedness 
is in short supply these days because we got like 10 things on our plate at one time. And, and I wonder how many of those things are really not the best. They may be good, but they're not the best. One thing I asked of the Lord, this I will seek, said David, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, Psalm 27, 4. This one thing I ask of the Lord. In other words, this is my main, this is my big ambition in life to know God and to fully enjoy him forever. This is the purpose for which I live. I wanna have a radical God-centered life. That was David's big aim in life. Listen to the resolve of the Apostle Paul. Here's another example. Run in such a way as to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. I, Paul says, discipline my body to bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul says, I, I build around me these boundaries, these guardrails. He calls it strict control, as though a runner who wants to be at ultimate peak fitness. He says, I do this, and I do this with my body in order to win the race that is in order to finish the course of ministry and of calling or the assignment that God has given to me. I wanna finish it. I wanna finish the race. Because he knew that, that on one day there was gonna be a day of assessment and examination. He would have to stand before Jesus Christ himself and his life would be examined and he did not want the verdict of his life to be disqualified. He wanted it to be approved unto God. Our works are gonna be tested, your works. One day they will be tested under the crucible of a fire. That's the picture that 1 Corinthians 3 describes. They will be tested to see of what quality they are. Single-mindedness knows how to say no to the passing pleasures of sin. Uh, Single-mindedness says no to what the world advertises as clever or chic, attractive, or this is gonna make you happy. Single-mindedness knows how to say yes to things that God approves, moral uprightness, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving when we are offended. Are you exercising single-minded determination to do the right thing? There's a third ingredient here. You wanna finish well? Then it requires this, a proactive zeal for the Lord's cause. You get back to work. And that's what Nehemiah did. Instead of being distracted by these letters or these invitations and intimidations, Nehemiah 
made the main thing the main thing, and he got back to work. He finished the job. He installed the doors on all of the gates. So we come to verse 15, and it says the wall was completed in 52 days, record time. So, and, and so remarkable was this feat of completing the, the walls that even the enemies, even the enemies realized that they had been fighting against God. No wonder they lost. Verse 16, they realized that this task had been accomplished by God. Proactive zeal means that we are committed to the work that God has put before us. What is that that God has called you to do, whether you're a parent here, a student, you might be in college, you might be high school, you may be retired, wherever and whatever that may be. An employee, a neighbor, a school teacher, a church leader, Certainly a Christian, I trust. Do you, do you understand what the will of the Lord is? So what is God's will for you? Are you proactive in accomplishing that? Proactive zeal is the third of these. You know, I wonder within our uh, group here today, if there are those among us who took a detour some years back, and, um, and you drifted from God. And perhaps along the way, uh, you listened to something that was advertised to you. And it was a dangerous voice. It was a false friend. And they talked to you, and they coached you along the way, and they encouraged you to take a detour, and you walked away from God's plan for your life some time back, maybe it's been some years, and, and today you're, you're among us. You're here, and you're listening to this, and you're feeling a regret that you did that. And, and you're saying to yourself, you know what they advertised? It didn't deliver at all. And you're saying to yourself, you know, if only I had been more watchful. If only I had been more single-minded. If only I had been more zealous in doing the right thing. When Jesus called the erring uh, Ephesian Christians to come back to their first love, he showed them the path back to the will that he had for them, back on the right path. And he set that forth in Revelation 2. And, and this is what he told them. This is the path back. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. The path back, if you're sitting here today and you're regretting that you drifted and you listened to all the wrong voices and you're thinking, it didn't deliver at all. Everything it advertised 
It came to nothing. What am I going to do? First of all, remember. Consider when you left the path. And consider where you are now. And how far you drifted. Do some self-inventory. And say to yourself, I need to make some changes. Secondly, repent. Weep and grieve and be contrite and broken over your sin before God. Weep. It ought to bring tears to you. And own your mistakes and turn back to God. And then finally, Jesus told the Ephesians, do the works you did at first. Today can be a day of healing. It can be a course correction to get back on the path, like a new day, and you can feel the forgiveness of God and his restoration. So let me close by asking a few probing questions. Are you close to finishing? And what you do in the next few days might be the difference between winning or losing it all. And what has the enemy of your soul been whispering to you recently? And who are those people who he has subtly and, and with a scheme and with a wringing of his hands he has put in your path in order to intimidate you or to pressure you into quitting or walking away. I think we should let Nehemiah be our encouragement to forge ahead. Be watchful. Be single-minded. And be zealous. And if this is agreeable to you, then let's ask God for his help to accomplish this. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we examine the life of Nehemiah, it comes as an inspiration to us all, but it also casts a bit of a warning on us because we feel sometimes how we have drifted. Some of us in small ways, others have really left the path for a long time. That God, we pray that you would encourage us to exercise these disciplines of being watchful, single-minded, and zealous about the things that are most important, the things that are important for you, and enable us to be the kind of people that ask only one real big thing, one big aim in life, and that is to have a fully devoted life unto you, a radical, God-centered life that covers all the bases and that we might stand before you one day approved rather than disqualified. And we ask this in Jesus' name.